This week on One Body, Stewarding God's Creation, Joe Heschmeyer from Catholic Answers talks about apologetics. One body. What are some of the obstacles in teaching others about the Catholic Church? What are some simple tools for evangelization we can all use? We'll answer this and much more. One body. Joe Heschmeyer is being interviewed by Divine Mercy Radio's on-air host, Cody Marincer. Welcome to the One Body Show. Uh, you're on here with uh, your host, Cody Marincer, and uh, we have a, a very special guest with us today. Uh, so this morning we have uh, Joe Heschmeyer. Um, he's an author, speaker, an apologist with Catholic Answers. Uh, Joe, it's great to have you in here. I mean, your bio actually goes on for a very long time, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I didn't think that we would um, no, I appreciate do you the, not going whole through the whole thing. thing. <laughs> um, but um, just to maybe quickly start us off. Um, sure. We're you know uh, we're blessed to have you in the uh, radio station here with us today. Um, but what brought you to Hayes uh, for at least for today? Yeah, I was uh, doing a Q and A at the college uh, last night, and it was amazing. There were tons of young people who showed up, and it was originally supposed to go from eight to ten, and it went to a little after eleven. And they were just asking solid questions, and it was a beautiful conversation, and it just seemed like a. A great place. I, I yeah. came out of there being like, I wonder if this would be a good place to send my kids to college. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, the nice thing is, I mean, I, I can't say what the rest of the um, college yeah. is like. I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, we, we do have a very vibrant um, campus center um, and it's fantastic. You know, um, Father Andy's doing a wonderful job down there. Yeah, I was very impressed so. by his leadership and he seemed to be someone who was well respected and admired uh, by yeah. the students there, which is a, a great trait to see. Yeah. And also, you know, as you said, they had great questions. Yeah. That's very heartening because not all of the world is going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, we, we can look there and be like, oh, wait a minute. There are, I mean, how many kids do you think were down there? Uh, you know, they estimated 80 beforehand. I don't know how many. It was It was like the chapel was fairly full. I mean, it was. Okay. It didn't feel like an empty space. So I don't yeah. know. I, I'm terrible at head counts. Yeah. And so there was like an hour there in the chapel. Then we did night prayer. And then we were going to break into a smaller space, but enough stayed uh-huh. around that we had to move to the library. Oh, and yeah. And so, it was, I mean, it was, it was great. It was a, a beautiful experience. Uh, but one of the questions that I, I really was struck by just I guess the number of different questions where people were asking, how do I evangelize my friends? Uh-huh. And I'm so glad to hear that's the question being asked because it's a question we all need to grapple with. And, you know, what, what do I do when someone asks me a question I don't know the answer to? That was another yeah. one. You know, and so it wasn't just how do I know if I should stay Catholic? It yeah. was like people who already get that they should be Catholic and want to know how they can be more effective witnesses and evangelists. Yeah. And that's inspiring to see. Yeah, that is awesome. I think that actually um, maybe leads us into um, a good topic to that I'd kind of like to start with, if it's okay with you. Um, so I actually just started reading your book, The Early The Early Church Was the Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, and uh, actually, funny enough, uh, today I got a, an email um, from Catholic Answers. And, and the reason why I got this book that I'm reading is because they had one of these buy two, get three free. And I was like, oh, fantastic, because I can give some copies to some of my friends who then they can pass it on, you know, yeah. and, and that's kind of the purpose of, um, as you were just saying, you know, you got kids asking, how do I evangelize my friends? Yeah. One, maybe give them this book and say, hey, um, I think this would be a good read for you. Um, but yeah, right now you've got another Catholic Answers sale going on with um, the Eucharist. So you wrote, uh, the Eucharist is really Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and I just got that in my inbox this morning. So continue doing that, please, because those are <laughs> awesome. Well, um, you know, in all seriousness, I will say one of the nice things about Catholic books, it doesn't just have to be mine, anybody's, you know, any good Catholic book is that they can often have those hard conversations, so to speak, for you, where you can say, hey, here's a book I think you might be interested in. Or, you know, somebody's got a question and you feel like you can't go deep enough. You can do your best to answer it and then say, if you want more, check out this book. And so we've tried to price our books for things like, like you said, buy two, get get three free, bulk sales, that sort of thing, of trying to get, you know, people who are trying to get this to share with others, we want to make it as affordable as we can. Uh, to, so that it can be realistic for people who want to who want to do that, leave it in their adoration chapel, or you know, give it to family members and friends, and 
because sometimes it really makes a difference. Absolutely. You know, and, and especially with this book here. Um, so I'm a convert. Um, Joe and I had just met this morning five minutes ago. <laughs> so um, we don't know a ton about one. Of, I probably know a lot more about you because Catholic Answers Live is one of my favorite shows oh, that I listen to. Um, that and Dr. Ray Garendi. Oh, yeah. Dr. Ray. <laughs> um, but uh, this book here, uh, you know, I I would say that um, it's very dangerous for a Protestant to start studying history <laughs> because you might find yourself in the Catholic Church. Um, and, and that's kind of part of my road that led to the church was just looking back and being like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. I had a lot of things wrong. Um, and, and so, yeah, just like, you know, in fact, for our listeners, a good thing to do is just look up um, early Christian writers. I used yep. to do this with my students. I taught at TMP. Oh, nice. And the thing is, you know, they find um, that you start finding every single one of these is a Catholic guy. Yeah. Um, sometimes you'll get like a Wikipedia answer, and um, the Wikipedia will uh, – they'll add in some other people, and you find out, oh, wait, those were heretics. Yeah. <laughs> so all you get is Catholics or heretics. Yeah, and, and I want to be clear here. People that Protestants would also find as heretics, people they wouldn't want to be associated with. Yeah, exactly. You know, sometimes you'll have uh, what are called primitive Baptists who, uh -huh. who say like, oh, yeah, Baptists have always been here. We just had different names. We used to be called like the Donatists and we used to be called uh, – and they'll, they'll go on all of you know, the uh, Cathars. And you're just like, guys, do you have any idea what those groups actually taught? Because we have their writings in some cases yeah. and they were not believing the same things you did. And, you know, the Cathars thought marriage was evil, and they were dualists. They were, like, basically Gnostics. It's yeah. like, you don't want to be endorsing that view. Uh, it just is its wild that people have such kind of a shallow read of church history, if at all. I, mm -hmm. uh, You know, in one of my other books, I, I made a point. Uh, Dr. Gavin Ortland talks about how, in a lot of Protestant seminaries, church history in seminary will do early church, where it's basically the apostles, maybe up to Augustine, and then you pick up the Reformation. Uh -huh. And so I think for many ordinary Christians, uh, Catholic as well as Protestant, there's maybe an understanding that there's the apostles. You may know about Augustine, but if you were asked to name like two other early Christians that aren't mentioned in the Bible, it would probably be very hard for a lot of people. Yeah. And I, I think that's an important gap in our knowledge because you want to know that you believe the same thing the early Christians believed, that you can interpret the words in some novel way. But you want to make sure you're not doing that. You're not reinterpreting the Bible in some new way because it's a pretty good sign that's not going to be the right answer. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and one of the things that I find, um, and you mentioned in your book, is that um, early Christians, that actually was their litmus test. <laughs> they were like, did the apostles teach this? Yeah. If no, then that's heretical. Yeah. So there's a, a great moment in this, in, like I mentioned it in the book, where Irenaeus, uh, he's the student of uh, St. Polycarp, and Polycarp is the student of the Apostle John. And we know a decent amount about all of their lives. But one of Polycarp's other students becomes a Gnostic. And Irenaeus writes a pretty scathing letter to him, but basically it's just like you said, like, hey, you and I both had the same teacher. He didn't teach this stuff. The Apostles didn't teach this stuff. Where are you getting this? Like, this isn't, this isn't real Christianity. And um, the scholar Marcus Brockmule points out that you see this kind of stuff within the first 200 years of Christianity. He, he calls it living memory, that when you're close enough where you can say you're, you're either people who knew the apostles or you know people who knew the apostles. Yeah. That until about the late 100s, because John dies in about 100. So you've got people who, like in the case of Polycarp, uh, he's born in the year 69, he dies in the year 154. And so... Polycarp was certainly old enough to remember. He was probably about 30, 31 when John dies. And then he is, uh, Irenaeus is a grown man when, when Polycarp dies. So it's not like, it's, you know, your great-grandfather where you, yeah. have, you have a dim memory. It's like, no, no. They knew these people for decades. And so I think we often have this idea like, oh, well, 180 sounds really late. So how do we know it's still authentic Christianity? And it's like, well, if you actually know who the people are on the ground, mm -hmm. it makes much more sense that they, they actually had decades of being able to ask these questions and have the back and forth where they're not just picking up a book, they're actually able to ask the author. Absolutely. You know, and, and one of the other resources that, um, and uh, I know you mentioned it in your book also, 
um, that uh, a lot of people maybe don't understand what it is or don't know what it is, is the Didache. Yeah. Um, and um, to my best understanding, um, the Didache is believed to be the teachings of the apostles um, to help their community understand what they're supposed to do in regards to lots of things like baptism. Yeah. So, it's, I mean, the name Didache just means like the teaching of the 12 apostles. Yeah. And so it isn't written by the apostles, but is an early Christian summary of what it is the apostles are teaching. In kind of, I mean, we might loosely say kind of a catechism format, okay. where it just has some basic things, like, you know, pray the Our Father at least three times a day. Mm-hmm. And these are the days we fast on. And uh, here's what we do on Sundays when we come together to celebrate the Eucharist. And, you know, those kind of things. Um, so it, it's nice. It's a nice, fairly short, uh, fairly straightforward just presentation of, you know, it even has to address, like, what do you do when a prophet comes to your town? <laughs> because uh-huh. there's these people with these prophetic gifts, and how do you know if they're legit? And so it's it's simple, and, it, and it's, it's extremely early. Uh, scholars differ in terms of how early, but there's a, a number of scholars who think it probably dates even from the time of the apostles, that it's probably a first century document that's just written by someone summarizing what it is they're teaching. Yeah. So I think the beauty of it is that um, it it is not part of the canon of Scripture. Right. But if we're going to look back and try to find, okay, what did the early church look like? Well, you're going to have to look outside of the canon of Scripture. Right. You have to find Christians who were writing at that time. And here is this document that when it talks about baptism, man, it— looks just like what mm-hmm. the Catholic Church has. When it talks about the Lord's Supper, it's talking about the Eucharist. I mean, and it's unapologetically so. And, and it's very um, clear that it's a sacrifice. Absolutely. Which is one of the striking things, that the Reformers were virtually unanimous in denying that the Eucharist was a sacrifice, because they said this is a re-sacrifice of Christ, mm-hmm. which is actually a bad sacrificial theology for reasons we can get into. Uh, but people from a Jewish or a pagan background who actually understood sacrificial theology from their own background realized with a food sacrifice, there's two steps. You kill the animal and then you eat it. And so the idea that you would kill the Lamb of God or he would lay down his life for us on Mm -hmm. Good Friday and then he would offer himself to be eaten at the Last Supper, that's not re-sacrificing. That's just how you complete the sacrifice. You know, in the Passover, you've got preparation day and then you have Passover. That's one sacrifice with two distinct actions. And so the Didache talks about the Eucharist as a sacrifice and applies the language of Malachi chapter 1, verse 11, about how from the rising of the sun to a sacrifice, the Gentiles, from the rising of the sun to the setting, the Gentiles will offer a sacrifice to the name of the Lord. And that language, I don't know where that's fulfilled in a clear way in Christianity if it's not in the Eucharist. I mean, you might say in some vague way, Christians make sacrifices elsewhere. But certainly the way the early Christians understood the passage was that this was a, a prefigurement of the Eucharist. Yeah, absolutely. Huh, that is awesome stuff. It is so fantastic having you in here. Um, and uh, uh, talking about this, uh, I mean, there's so many places that we can go. But I just really like that uh, we're starting here with this because, um, as we said, you know, those young people that have that or um, anybody my age, you know, I'm over 40, I'm 43, you know, and so I'm not the young age anymore. Uh, but um, anybody out there that's listening, uh, you know, w- it I think that's probably the best thing you can do is to start looking at the early church fathers, yeah. look at um, what they wrote, um, and you will be so solidified in your faith because, like I said, there's. I don't think it's easy to look at early church history and stay away from the Catholic Church after that. Well, yeah, let me put it like this. You know, you've got people like Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code who mm-hmm. claim, oh, you know, all this stuff about Jesus being the Son of God and divine— that's all invented at the Council of Nicaea in 325. And that's flagrantly untrue. Yeah. But likewise, you have a lot of Protestants who make similar claims about all the distinctively Catholic stuff. Like, oh, the early Christians didn't believe in this stuff. That's all much later. And I, I often see this in the form of these just poorly sourced or to- totally unsourced just assertions. It'll be like a mm-hmm. timeline where it's like, well, the first time you see the sign of the cross is in 500. And it's like, that's not true. We have... Uh, documents all about the sign of the cross, like Tertullian's writing De Corona, where he just spends so much time talking about the nature of the sign of the cross and why Christians make it and all. I mean, and that's from 200. Yeah. And you're just like, well, okay, all of these dates that are kind of thrown out on the on the non-Catholic side tend to be 
complete fictions or half truths. Or maybe it's like, well, that's the point where it was dogmatically defined because mm-hmm. that's when the doctrine got challenged. You know, uh, and the way I'd put it is like this: in Christianity, there's no dogmatic definition against cannibalism oh, because yeah. it's such an outrageous <laughs> thing to think that it might be okay uh-huh. that nobody's ever bothered to define it. Yeah, but if that somehow became popular, we would define it. Absolutely. I mean, or to take a, a more realistic example. How many church documents, Catholic or Protestant, 150 years ago had to say marriage is between a man and a woman? Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't because they didn't believe that. It's because everyone believed that. Yeah. And so sometimes you'll find people say, well, this is the first time the church spoke authoritatively on X issue. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. But maybe that's because everyone already knew the answer to X until it was challenged. So only way to find out is to read what people were saying beforehand. So on things like the Eucharist, on things like uh, the nature of the church, you need a bishop in every diocese, or can you just have like a panel of presbyters? All of those questions, the early Christians are astonishingly clear on this. And it's only much, much, much later when challenges come up that they have to kind of authoritatively declare it. Uh, But you can read their writings and say, okay, these guys clearly have a common sense. And I mean, a common sense, like they're all unified. You might think they're all wrong, but you can't say they're all Protestants. And you yeah. can't even really say some of them are Catholic and some are Protestant because we don't find them fighting. They think they're saying the same thing. And the thing they seem to be saying is astoundingly Catholic. Yeah. So I guess the challenge I would say is this. I've encountered a number of Protestants who actively discourage other Protestants from reading the early Christians. And that <laughs> well, is a why huge... Would that be? I know. It's a big red flag. And they'll say, oh, well, they're not divinely inspired. And it's like, yeah, but neither are the authors you like to read. <laughs> C.S. Yeah. Lewis, James White, whoever you've got, those yeah. people aren't divinely inspired. Yeah. And it's not the standard you use for reading anybody else. So why are you not reading the early Christians? Exactly. And it's like, well, because when you read them, you realize how much, as you know, because a lot of Protestants will imagine they're getting back to early Christianity. There's, you know, well, early Christianity from the glimpses we get in Acts, maybe it looks more like Protestantism to you. And so you imagine that Christians in the first and second century were really Protestant. And then you read the writings of those guys, and it's like, nope, they weren't. Oops. I, I misread <laughs> yeah. the biblical evidence. Yeah. And, and so allow yourself to be challenged in that way. And then the last thing I say on that is I've met numerous people like yourself who say, when I started reading the early church fathers, I became Catholic. And I have never in my life met someone who was Catholic who started reading the early church fathers and said, I need to become evangelical. I need to become Anglican. I need to become Protestant. Yeah. It just, I've never seen it happen. Maybe there's somebody out there with that story. It's so astonishingly rare if that thing exists. Yeah. And that should be a big red flag. Like why, why do we not see that if the Protestant claims about the early church are true? Yeah. Agreed. Wow. That is an awesome, awesome chunk of information there for um, us to dissect. Um, And then uh, maybe we can move from there. Um, And just, uh, actually find out a little bit more about you. Oh, sure. <laughs> so that was quite the uh, introduction for all of us. <laughs> yes. uh, but, uh, you know, like I said, um, I love listening to Catholic Answers. It's just, it's fantastic because uh, you've probably realized this too, that no matter how many times you've answered something, every once in a while there comes a question where you're like, well, I haven't quite heard it in that way before yeah. or something like that. So what what was your road to becoming an apologist for Catholic Answers? Yeah, so I was in law school. and I, So I grew up Catholic, but I didn't grow up with a very deep understanding about why we were Catholic. I was curious about it, but like I didn't know about the catechism until I think college at least. And so I, I had very l- poor understanding of kind of the who, what, when, where, why, mm-hmm. of why we believe what we believe. Um, and so when I was in college, my RA, uh, now Father Andrew Strobel, was a solid Catholic, and as I've already kind of clued in, he became a priest for Kansas City, Kansas. And he, I uh, would carpool with him, which is a polite way of saying I always would buy these cheap cars that would break down. And so <laughs> <laughs> we'd go from Kansas City to Topeka, which is about 75 minutes, and the whole time I would just pepper him. I was 18. I'd just pepper him with questions about why he was Catholic and, you know, why does the church teach X, Y, Z? But in this, like, smug uh-huh. 18-year-old debater kind of way, because I was a debater yeah. in high school and debater in college, and so was he. And so okay. he was more than equipped to answer every challenge I threw out there. And I remember having this sense of, like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I wasn't always yeah. convinced, you know, mm-hmm. but I could at least be like, well, I see why you guys believe that. Uh-huh. 
And when that happens to you like 20 times, (laughs) you're like, okay, maybe I'm just wrong. (laughs) Maybe this actually holds together. Because I kept thinking I had like the the crack in the wall that I was going to just tear down the whole edifice. And and then I didn't. And again, it just was like happening repeatedly. So then I got really interested in kind of the intellectual side of the faith. And this led eventually to a a deeper spiritual conversion where I actually had to put this into practice. I couldn't just read about it. Um, But so halfway through law school... It's 2009, and I'm just getting so distracted from law school, just reading, like, the Church Fathers and reading all sorts of stuff. And I'm just devouring it. And I think, like, I need an outlet for this because I'm being so obnoxious with my non-Catholic friends. Because <laughs> I'm just, like, wanting to debate John 6, and they're like, we need to study contracts. And because, you know, we're all <laughs> trying to get through law school. And, and so I, I create the blog Shameless Popery at the time. Uh, to just have an outlet. And I imagined I would just do it for, you know, everybody had a blog uh-huh. in those days. So I thought I'd just have this for like a few months. And then when I ran out of questions, I would stop. And it just like it got a conversation started and people were engaged with it and responded. And they would ask questions. And I'd go explore those. And I found that it just led me down this kind of rabbit trail. And it was nice at the time because if somebody asked me a question and I was stumped by it, it was all in, in written form. I didn't have to have an answer on the spot. I could oh, go yeah. research and then put up a blog post about what I found. And so it was, it was a great way for me, without really meaning to, it was a great way for me to grow in my faith and grow in my understanding. Uh, and then after law school, I became a lawyer for a few minutes and then went to seminary. And so in seminary, I got a much more formal education in philosophy and theology. So a lot of those, okay. the holes that I had uh, were kind of filled in then. Yeah. Um, I didn't obviously become ordained. And uh, after that, I went to work for a, a group in Kansas City that does uh, apologetics, evangelization, catechesis kind of stuff. And so I got to kind of do that stuff on the ground. And at the same time, I was making more connections with Catholic Answers, where I was just going on the show. I started writing a book for them. I would do articles for the magazine. And then in 2021, they asked if I wanted to come aboard. And so I was already doing most of the parts of my job. Yeah. I was just doing them basically for free. <laughs> so... <laughs> So it was sure, like, I'll come get paid yeah, for exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. It was like, like, hey, you know that thing you're doing right now for free? Do you want to get paid for it? It was like, well, I'm going to have to discern that really carefully. Yes, of course I want to get yeah, like, <laughs> So now I have more time to do the stuff I was moonlighting doing, you know, just yeah. the stuff. Because it was stuff I felt driven to do. Yeah. If any job I had, I was going to be doing some of that stuff in my free time. And I, I know people who are like that where they just have to have that outlet where they need to think about and talk about mm-hmm. theology and apologetics and all of that. And I definitely have and had that bug. And so to be able to have that be my full-time job, it's kind of like not having a job. It's great. <laughs> That's fantastic. You know, I'm amazed at how um, how alike our stories are. I mean, even though you were raised Catholic, that's actually my uh, part of my story as coming into the church. Um, I got to go through RCIA with uh, Father Fred Gatchett. He's a wonderful priest in our diocese here. Um, he's now the vicar general um, oh, in Salina Diocese, and he's our um, chaplain for this radio station. Oh, nice. Um, but uh, so yeah, I same type of thing. I went. I was the only candidate, um, and so I went to him with all these fastball yes. questions, which I thought were fastball questions. <laughs> and then, I mean, I, I didn't realize who I was sitting down with. And it, just after he kept Babe Ruthing yes. out of the park all the time, I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, my goodness. I've never even heard of John chapter six before. Yeah. You know, um, and, and so, yeah, same type of thing. You know, you Catholic, me not. But yet that, that same road of like ask those difficult questions. Yeah. And so I always try to encourage, you know, a lot of times the hardest thing is getting people to feel comfortable asking the questions because yeah. they think they're being rude if they ask a hard question. Uh-huh. And it's like, well, go ahead and ask it. Yeah. And the example I always give is, you know, well, why do we call Jacob Israel? Because he wrestles with God. Yeah. And so if the church is the new Israel... We need to be willing to wrestle with God. That means don't just hide the questions and the doubts and the struggles you've got. Uh-huh. Bring them forward and let's wrestle with them. Let's, let's try to figure that out. And that's that's not something to be afraid of. Absolutely. And that's why I love Catholic Answers Live. <laughs> yeah. And as you know, I mean, if you want to know something better, um, try to teach it to someone. Yeah, um, and so oh, like, absolutely. Like you started that blog. And you don't have to do this with yourself if you're out there. I mean, you can just say, okay. I, I don't need to get in arguments or anything like that, but I can just look up, okay, what difficulties am I having and what are intelligent people saying about this? 
We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to One Body Stewarding God's Creation. We'll be right back with more from Joe Heschmeyer on apologetics, right here on Divine Mercy Radio. One Body Stewarding God's Creation. We're back on One Body Stewarding God's Creation, right here on Divine Mercy Radio. Apologetics. One body, one body. Joe Heschmeyer. One body, God's creation. Cody Marincer conducts the interview. So you as, a, uh, as an apologist, someone on um, the staff for Catholic Answers, um, what are maybe what are some of the um, difficult things you deal with, and what are some of the maybe the best things that you see? Does that make sense? Yeah. So, do you want to know struggles? Do you want to know questions? What, there's a lot of ways we could go with that with that question. Um, well, like I guess maybe let's go with struggles. That um, what's kind of difficult about being an apologist? Oh, okay. Yeah, I think one thing is there is this idea that neutral or objective is the best. And so the fact that it was like, it's Catholic answers. Some people are going to write us off just because like, well, obviously that's biased and obviously that means oh, yeah. it's untrustworthy. And it's like, no, everybody's got a perspective. We're just upfront about what our perspective is. Yeah. And we're still going to try to be faithful to the facts. And so if there's something that's inconvenient, we'll try to acknowledge that and say, well, here's how we make sense of that in spite of you know uh-huh. this inconvenient seeming fact. Uh, but you, so you, you will have that. You'll have people who are kind of dismissive based on that. And I think also you have people who's, who sort of think that we're used car salesmen just by virtue of being apologists. <laughs> you know, like our job is just to sell you. And it's like, no, nah, I hope not. I, I don't want it to be that yeah. at all. Like I, I want it to be that open and honest struggle with trying to understand the truth because I've been, you know, as you just said, like both of us have been beneficiaries of being able to struggle in an honest way and feeling satisfied with the answers. And so I don't yeah. want to sell somebody – a bill of goods. They don't want to sell an overly simplified version of the church. So just to take a concrete example, it's easy to say like, oh, you know, you Protestants are so divided. Come to the Catholic Church where everything is unified. <laughs> they take oh. a step inside the Catholic Church and they're like, yeah. what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. And so we need to be able to be forthright with saying like, yeah, yeah, we've got our problems just like anybody else does. So why are we still Catholic? Yeah. And to be able to have a good answer to that kind of question, yeah. I think makes for actually much more effective apologetic. Yeah. So that would be one of the, I guess, the harder parts in that sense, just how do you how do you do that in an honest way? And then how do you win the trust of people who are very, like, suspicious? Yeah. In terms of the best, it's certainly the conversions. I mean, the number of people who were going through some kind of struggle or were in a crisis of faith or were questioning whether they should become Catholic, where we've played kind of a role in their journey, is yeah. incredibly inspiring. We get those stories all the time. And I love, I love those stories. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't always write to everybody who, who sends us in one, but I, I'm edified by them. And it's a great reminder that we're not just, we're not just playing for the home field. We're not just, you know, playing for the people who are already bought in and converted and totally on board. Absolutely. There are a lot of people who maybe they're driving. I'll, actually, I'll, I'll give one concrete example. Everybody's not listening because we're in Western Kansas. <laughs> a guy in Kansas City who had been a Protestant. I think he'd actually even been a Protestant pastor at one point uh-huh. and has become an agnostic. Um, but he listens to Catholic Answers. And he called in one time and asked a question. And then I, I got his contact info when I, I found out he was in Kansas City. I asked him to stand the line. We got his information. I sat down and had coffee with him for like three hours. And I don't know, what's, I don't know what the Lord is doing with his life. But like this is a guy yeah. who, as much as he's struggling, is still tuning into Catholic Answers and is still trying to be open to something. There's something he's finding there that he's wanting more of. And I just, I find stories like that so inspiring, even if I don't know what God is doing in those stories. Oh, absolutely. Wow, yeah, that that reminds me of um, in Scripture um, where um, John the Baptist yeah. is put in prison. Yes. Um, but, it's because, but yet... Um, Oh, man, just mind blanked. Herod? Herod, thank you. Very good. Um, Herod, it says, loves to listen to it. He's perplexed. Yeah. You know, and so I I think you're right um, that uh, the truth convicts. Um, 
but something that I, I, I take from you guys, because uh, I, I taught for 10 years, and I know there were many conversations that I messed up. I'll, I'll admit that, mm-hmm. especially being the, your first year. I mean, your sure. first year as a teacher, you're terrible. Um, I, there's probably <laughs> teachers out there that were really good at it. I know I wasn't. Um, but part of that is learning how to have those conversations. And that's one of the things I've really taken from you guys. Um, and, and like I look at like Trent Horn also. I think he's really good at that, too. He's excellent at it. Um, is being able to – because sometimes I'm sitting here listening to you guys and, and I'm almost ready to my, – my head's about to explode. Like <laughs> how do they stay so calm with these people? Because I'm sitting there going, how can you hold that position? It is yeah. – it completely, there's no logic, there's no reasoning, you know, and, and so that's one of the things that um, maybe I'd ask you about is um, what's your journey on that kind of been like as to how do you keep your cool um, and be able to have conversations with people who are vehemently against to what yeah. you're saying? So I guess a couple of things. One, just biblically, Ephesians 6, St. Paul says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. That the person you're talking to is not your enemy, yeah. even if they have the worst, most odious views possible. Yeah, they they are not actually your enemy, and that's true whether it's another Christian, whether it's an atheist, whether it's someone who's promoting abortion, whether it's, they are not your enemy. They may be in service of the enemy, but they're a victim of that, and they may be a willing victim of that, but they're a victim of that, and that's the real enemy. Yeah. Uh, I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old as well as an infant, <laughs> and they're not allowed to say they hate people, but they are allowed to say they hate the devil. So yeah. my, my four-year-old's going through kind of a picky stage where she'll be like, oh, I hate that. And then her brother will chime in, I hate the snake. <laughs> and so <laughs> he, it, and it's like, yeah, theologically, I'm solid with that. You know, yeah. like, that's who we should be. That's who we're up against. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing to remember. When you realize the other person is not your enemy, it changes the whole dynamic. You're not trying to just crush them in the argument. You're trying to win them over. Um, St. Peter Lombard, I believe it was, in his commentary on Ephesians 6, uh, used a medieval warfare example and says that uh, evil men are like horses and the devils are the riders. But the point of that is that you don't want to kill the horse in the battle. You want to capture the horse. Oh, yeah. And so if you can dismount the rider, if you can get them free of this demonic influence— and then, hey, free horse. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's actually that good for awesome. the army. And, and so in a similar way, approaching it like that, you have much more respect for the other person. And then you also have that kind of like there before the grace of God go I realization. Like I was really wrong on a lot of stuff. And yeah. I, I could have been more wrong, but for the grace of God. Yeah. So I think that's one. Uh, two, a, a thing Trent does really well and a thing that we were taught to do in seminary is just ask good questions. Mm-hmm. That one of the reasons that we so often uh, short-circuit conversations and make them unproductive is that we pipe in with the right answer, what we think the right answer is. And it's good to know what the right answer is, but it's good to know when to offer that. And it usually isn't right away. I mean, this is something I'm constantly relearning in marriage, where it's yeah. like, oh, should I solve this problem or should I listen to it? <laughs> oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say which sex is worse at this, but I think ask your wife and she'll tell you. Yeah. Uh, you know, like this, that, that's a thing that we need to grow in, of just asking those questions and letting the person feel heard. And when you do that, whether it's a student, whether it's a person challenging you, whatever it is, that can create goodwill. Because a lot of times a person who has that question, there may be a lot of other things coming up. Like maybe they're afraid of having that conflict or maybe they're really angry and they're wanting to look for a fight. Whatever the case, when you don't approach it as a battle, but instead like ask some questions, that can shift the whole dynamic of the conversation in some really profound ways. And I've been, I've been really impressed by the reactions of people who I wouldn't have thought were open. I'm going to give one example. And I know this is kind of a long answer. No, go ahead. Uh, I was invited at a class at KU in Lawrence to come in and give the pro-life case. And I did. And this was not a crowd that was entirely favorable to that. Yeah. And so one of the students in particular was asking a lot of questions uh, based on kind of the line of reasoning I had. And then we got to a point where I was asking him questions like, okay, well, it sounds like based on what you're saying that you would be okay even with letting an infant die. And he said, yeah. And I think it was kind of a horrifying moment, hopefully, yeah. for some of his classmates. It was certainly a horrifying moment for me. But then after the class, I think the student had time to sort of think about what he, he'd followed his own argument to its logical uh-huh. conclusion. 
And we talked for a little bit after the class. And then that Saturday, he sat down and got coffee with me. And he wanted to know whether it was wrong to use birth control. <laughs> I was like, okay, we've made some movements <laughs> yeah. in like the last five days yep. in like the course of three conversations. And, and so that's the other thing I would say is people are often less uh, coherent in their views or convicted in their views than they might seem. A lot of people yeah. have kind of muddled, confused views. Mm-hmm. And so if you give them room to modify their views instead of like demonizing them for having the wrong ones, give them the grace to kind of like change their view and don't even call them out on it. Just be like, oh, good. Okay. I yeah. think you've got a, a good understanding of this issue. It's amazing the, the kind of stuff God can do in that situation. Absolutely. You know, and that's one of the things that I think, as I've said, you know, um, I have messed up learning to get better on it. Um, but if when you look at anything, I, I don't know – if ever or hardly ever, do you see somebody who um, just beats down somebody in a verbal argument that that other person is like, oh, yeah, you're right. I was so wrong. <laughs> right. I now change my view. I've never really actually seen that happen. I've seen people go quiet or I've seen both people just get horribly upset and just start yes. screaming at each other. And I get so tired of watching things like right. that. Like, those are those are the worst types of if you even want to call it a debate because that's not what right. a debate really is. You know, but those are horrible where you see like, okay, you just lost that person. But also so I think something that was really important that I learned years ago is a lot of times it may not even be about that person. Right. They're playing for the audience. Exactly. And so a lot of times that person, now you just had a really great example of where they were able to introspectively be like, wait a minute. My view is pretty crazy. But also how many people around just watching that civil conversation instead of just a blah, 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 were able to go, okay, yeah, that's kind of crazy. Do I think like that? Yeah. And so – and that can be actually really beneficial. This is – so – I'm a big believer that online debates are much better than people give them credit for. When people say, oh, no one's ever converted through an online debate, they're imagining that first type where people are just yelling at each other and just Mm -hmm. sloganeering. Yeah, that doesn't work. That's not because it's online. That's because it's just not an effective way to communicate an idea. Uh, But, yeah, and actually Ben Franklin pointed this out. I think it was in Poor Richard's Almanac. He said, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. (laughs) You know, like if you just bang someone over the head with the truth, that's not going to actually change their mind. You might have given them new information. People are really good at screening out inconvenient information if they want to. Uh, Blaise Pascal gives really good advice that's much harder in the pensée, he, he says, if we wish to correct with advantage, we must first see the perspective our opponent sees it from and then see where he's right and then affirm that and then show him what he's missing. And his point is that that's true on any issue, whether it's theology, whether it's math, he's a mathematician, a philosopher, a theologian. I mean, whatever it is, that's how you get around all of the ego and everything else is you, you understand where the person's coming from and you affirm like, oh, okay, like you're worried about X, and that's good, and I'm glad you are, but what about this other dimension that maybe you haven't considered? That gives people much more space to change their view because Mm -hmm. it also gives them kind of a framework in which to do it. What I mean by that is if you're having a debate and one person is starting from one set of premises and you're starting from your set of premises and neither of you is doing any work to connect with the other one, well, your conclusions might both follow logically but that doesn't. You're never going to connect because you, yeah. you haven't done the actual work. Especially where I see this is on the abortion debate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's very easy to for each side to just demonize the other person. Um, but if you can, you know, there. Like, I think there are people out there that are willing to move on this. That um, when you know, for right or wrong, when they when they say um, I'm worried about women's rights. Yeah. Right. Like, um, and the reason why I say for right or for wrong is not because like women's rights are wrong or anything, but it's just that their view of what that really means, you know, if that means killing a child, that's obviously wrong. But like you were saying, we can we can start there and agree that okay, women's rights are a good thing. Yeah. And, and I think women should be able to do what they want with their bodies, and then further it from there. So I think yeah. that's a very healthy point that you put Yeah, up. so I think there's a couple ways. So in that particular case, there's a few ways we could talk about that. One is to say the right to bodily autonomy is really good and really important. 
And it sounds like we actually agree on this. And so then the entire question becomes, what's in the womb of the woman there? Is that another child with a distinct body? Because if so, we want to respect their bodily autonomy as well. Exactly. And if it's not, then no worries. We don't have to worry about abortion at all. We can have abortion for everybody on demand. But then the entire question becomes, what is the status of the unborn child? Yeah. And in a way that isn't – because I think we would also agree, and you can have this conversation, whether it's in the context of women's rights, bodily autonomy, however you frame it, most people, if you ask them, would say, yes, children, born children, can be an inconvenience and can really hinder you. Like if you find yourself suddenly a single mom, you get abandoned or your husband dies or whatever the situation is, that's going to limit your life choices in some ways. And that can be really frustrating and difficult. And yet in that – we wouldn't say, therefore, you can kill your kids. Yeah. And no one has any difficulty on any of that. Yeah. And so then the question becomes, well, should we treat unborn kids any differently than born kids here? And if so, why? Because it can't just be unborn kids can be an inconvenience. All kids can be an inconvenience. No offense yeah. to any kids listening. <laughs> but that's not a reason to kill them. Absolutely. And, and the beautiful thing here. And I mean, this would be part of a broader vision is we should be able to be inconveniences. Having a sick relative is an inconvenience. Having an mm-hmm. aging relative is a, an inconvenience. And so do we want a society that says we're going to kill the weak and the inconvenient? Or do we want a society that says we're going to bend over backwards to take care of them? So maybe the, the solution is how can we step up taking care of pregnant moms? Yeah. Um, and then we can find some common ground there. Yeah. But it's not if, – if we just say – kill the inconvenient child. That is furthering the type of society that we don't want rather than the type of society that we do want. Yeah. yeah it, that is so wonderful because, you know, um, like we see there, it's those questions that were asked. Yeah. Like you said earlier, learn to ask questions. And, and then also, yes, learn to find that common ground where there can be common ground. Uh, because if we think to ourselves, if someone came up to us and said, you Catholics are such idiots. You're idolaters, da-da-da, da-da-da-da. Well, we know immediately where they're coming from. They right. don't want to have a conversation right. and understand us. They just want to level charges. Right. We have to understand ourselves the same way, that if we are leveling charges at people, they are many of them are not coming from a background of theology. They're not. Right. Many of them aren't coming from a background of having maybe even loving parents in the home, mm-hmm. two parents. Um, and, so, and so to understand the hardships where they're at and be able to ask those questions and move from there will be what softens hearts and yeah. brings people to the truth. People who are wrong are wrong for a reason. Yeah. No one just says, I'm going to be wrong today. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And so we can know they're wrong, but if we don't understand why they're wrong, like if we don't understand why they think they're right in holding this obviously wrong opinion, then we're probably missing the key that's needed to unlock changing their view. If we don't know what's led them into thinking that view makes sense. And so how are you going to find that out? Well, probably by talking to them, yep. probably by getting a better sense of their worldview. Yep, absolutely. I think that kind of leads us toward then um, maybe let's look intro, into the church itself a little bit. Um, you know, uh, because when we're talking about why do people hold wrong beliefs and stuff like that, there are plenty of people who call themselves Catholics who also hold those beliefs. And and that can maybe even be the more difficult conversations is because like, well, wait a minute, but you call yourself a Catholic. Um, And so I, you know, maybe the last thing we can look at, I think we got about 10 minutes here is to, um, especially like the Eucharist, um, because that's what brought me to the church. Um, but yet there are still, you have to be careful with polls. I, I get that. Yeah, yeah. You know, because there are some polls that say like 70% of church-going Catholics don't believe in the Eucharist, where if you actually look at other um, polls, you find, wait a minute, no, those who go regularly, like right. every Sunday, like you're supposed to, and especially if you find daily, it's much higher. But there still are those people in the pews that take a more Protestant type of view toward the Eucharist. Um, and, and so how do we then maybe even evangelize people within our own um, parishes so that we can have a stronger church? Yeah. So I'm going to start with kind of a 20,000-foot view and then get more specific on the Eucharist. Okay. When people are partway on board and partway not on board, the temptation is to immediately rush to why are you wrong on the part you're not on board on. Uh-huh. 
And I think it's often better to instead focus on why they are Catholic at all in this case. And I'll give, it, I'll give an abortion example. I was doing some evangelization on a college campus, and I spoke to a young woman who had grown up Catholic and said she would still go to Mass with her parents when she was at home, but she doesn't agree with the Catholic Church on some issues, and she mentioned abortion. And she said, on abortion, she doesn't want just like widespread abortion, but she thinks it should be legal in cases of rape, and says life of the mother. Pretty standard uh-huh. kind of view. And I said, well, wait a second. Why are you against abortion in all those other cases? And she was totally caught off guard by the question, because she thought I was going to yeah. ask why she was okay with abortion in the exceptional kind of cases. Uh-huh. But instead, I asked her to make the case against abortion the rest of the time. Because what does that do? Because then it's not me dumping onto her my views about why abortion is wrong. Absolutely. It's her having to acknowledge why she knows abortion is wrong Mm -hmm. in all those other cases. And then it's a very easy step to say, well, is the child any less a child in these other cases? Like, why does it matter who the dad is? And, you know, (laughs) this is it. Yeah. Would you tell someone who was born out of a situation of rape that their life is worth any less than someone born in a healthy, loving marriage? Of course not. Human dignity doesn't work like that. And so if you can see why abortion is wrong in all these other cases, then let's follow follow the logic. Yeah. And so likewise, when you're dealing with someone who is Catholic, but maybe they don't go to mass, Catholic, but uh, they don't believe X, Y, Z church teaching, find out why they consider themselves Catholic. What is it about the Catholic church that speaks to them? And you'd be amazed. I had, I was actually talking to um, an extended family member who this was kind of a situation for, and they had this incredible story of, of what was just very plainly a supernatural intervention in their life. Like, I mean, it would, the details of it were such that it, you wouldn't have to be a believer to <laughs> be like, it. obviously this is a miracle. And that kept them in some complicated relationship with the church. You can build on that. Like, okay, uh-huh. if you know God exists, so yeah, you know absolutely. the church is true based on this encounter, Yeah, let's see what else the church has to say and let's see if we can learn from that. But notice you're starting with that common ground. And so in terms of mass, I think a lot of people have the mistaken view that as long as we get people into Mass, then everything will be okay. And it doesn't <laughs> really work like that. No. Like, the Mass is not primarily a tool of evangelization and isn't meant to be. In yeah. the early church, non-Catholics weren't invited to Mass. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like the Last Supper. Jesus doesn't invite the Masses to the Last Supper. He invites the Twelve. And so it's for those who are already bought in. And so we need other ways to kind of reach people. So in other words, if if the expectation is as long as this person is going to Mass, even if they don't believe any of this stuff, we're good. No, I don't think that is, is what we need I to agree. be doing. Um, but instead, you build that love, and then the, the Mass attendance will follow. Like if people understand the mystery of the Eucharist, I mean, as much as any of us understand the mystery <laughs> yeah, of the Eucharist, exactly. but if they get that the Eucharist really is the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, how are they going to stay home? Yeah. And that's going to be much more of a driver than being like, well, there's an obligation. Yeah. Uh, make them see. And, and, you know, I'd say the same thing about anything. If you started off with uh, telling someone about marriage in terms of all the rules of what you're not allowed to do and, you know, you'd have less control of your finances <laughs> and your time and you can't date anybody else and da 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 You know, you, you're going to be constantly woken up before dawn by your small children. <laughs> Maybe that's just me talking. But, no, you know, this happens all the time to me still. <laughs> so, you know, like, if that's how you pitched marriage, people would be like, no, thanks. Yeah, Sounds exactly. Sounds horrible. Yeah. And so likewise, we often pitch Catholicism as this kind of legalistic thing by telling all the people, here are all the things you're not allowed to do. Uh-huh. And it's like, yeah, you don't start there. You start the yes. Yeah. Start with explaining the beauty of marriage. You know, I have an incredible wife, incredible kids. And it's in that yes that all of the no's, all the things I'm not allowed to do, follow from really naturally. Because the relationship of love is one that is a, is a ruled relationship. There's boundaries to it. And so likewise, if I love God and love my neighbor, there needs to be some healthy boundaries to what that looks like and it's a healthy expression of it. You know, I don't go offer human sacrifice out of my love for God. That's an <laughs> yeah. unhealthy expression of that love. And so how do we channel that in the right way? And how do we know what it is God wants? Well, good news. He reveals himself in Jesus Christ and he tells us what he wants and Jesus builds a church. And so we have access to understand how do we have a healthy, loving relationship with God, who I really want to have a healthy, loving relationship with. Yeah. And so I think if you explain it that way, then it's not just, well, there's some men over in Rome who made this rule that you're not allowed to have fun, <laughs> exactly. which is how it often comes off sound. Yep. 
Yep, I agree, and and you know that's that's a good place for us to to kind of bring this conversation to fulfillment, you know, and, and maybe end there, um, get a few more thoughts from you. But one of my favorite things to do is talk to young couples. I get to lead couples through marriage preparation. And one of them is to talk to them, you know, um, are you going to mass? And rather than looking at it as, yes, it's an obligation, mm-hmm. but I, I talk to them, I'm like, it's, it's like saying, you're obligated to be at your wedding day. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, now, does that feel like, if it feels like, a, oh my goodness, well, then you're not ready to be married. And maybe right. we should have a further conversation <laughs> right. about this. But if you are so excited to be with this person that's sitting right here next to you, that that's why you're here is preparing for that big day, yeah. then imagine looking at Sunday like that. And if we see, just like you were saying, if we see the mass like that, then I agree with you 100%. How in the world can we keep ourselves away from it? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. it's, it's true. And that's the kind of thing we want to help people do is fall in love with Jesus Christ and fall in love with his church. Absolutely. So final closing words or thoughts with you um, that you'd like to leave us with today. Uh, do, you have Bishop Vinky in your diocese. Absolutely. Right? Yes. He, uh, he yep. is one of my old formators at the North American College. Oh, really? You, you've been incredibly blessed. He's a good man with a gentle oh, soul. Absolutely. And... And so, yeah, I would just say anyone listening, just appreciate the wonders that you have. I mean, I've been very impressed with the Catholics I've met here. I've been here twice, and I've been thoroughly impressed every time in terms of just the the quality and the caliber. You find places where that's not nearly as true. And so if you're someone who's – I mean, if you're tuned in enough to listen to a Catholic show for an hour (laughs) – just thank Probably God. Okay. Yeah, thank God for the gift of the faith. Thank God for the the blessings that you have here. And maybe today, take an opportunity to say thank you to to one person in your life who's who's been an important part of your own faith journey. Because I think that attitude of of thankfulness, of being appreciative of the gifts we have, and of expressing that gratitude is something that can only benefit us and is, is well-received by those around us. Wow, that is wonderful. What well, has been awesome having you here. We do, um, shameless plug, we get to have you back. <laughs> um, so you're coming to our banquet. Um, and so um, in September, um, in Hayes, uh, if I got it right, you're going to be talking about Pope Peter. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. And then um, you'll go to Colby the next day and talk about what's the big deal about Mary. Ah, wonderful. You know so, what? You know my schedule better than I do. That's I, I've been looking at my February <laughs> schedule. I haven't even gotten past March. Yeah, like, well, you know my fall schedule. Yeah, that's only because I asked right before you came in. <laughs> so, but yeah, just, just like I said, shameless plug there. It's going to be great to have you back on. Um, join us at, at the banquet, um, and we look forward to uh, speaking with you then. Oh, wonderful. All right. Wonderful having you here. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate yeah, my it. my pleasure. Nice meeting you. Thanks for tuning in to One Body, Stewarding God's Creation. If you're a business or a service that can underwrite this One Body show, please know that your underwriting spot can run three times during the show, which runs five times a week. The cost for all five stations is a mere $150 per month. Interested? Call 785-621-4110. You're listening to the Network of Stations of Divine Mercy Radio. If today you hear His voice, harden not your heart. One body, stewarding God's creation.